Hey there, movie fans, and welcome to episode 43 of Silver Screeners. I'm your host, Frank, vocally coming through your device from Massachusetts. Thank you, as always, for clicking that little triangle that points to the right to give this a listen. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome. And if you've listened before, then welcome back, and thank you for coming back. This is a weekly show on movies, usually a pair of them per episode, with sometimes some love thrown at them, and at times, depending on the movie, maybe even a little skepticism. But regardless, it's all in the name of love for the cinema, past, present, and future. Over the past couple of months, I've been doing a special series on Oscar-winning and nominated films that hopefully is getting you geared up for the upcoming Oscar season. It's Sunday, March 6th as of this recording, so the 2022 Oscars telecast is only three weeks away. I'm happy to be able to say that over the past couple of weeks, I've managed to carve out some time to catch a few more of the Best Picture nominees, including Coda and West Side Story. I'd already seen Dune and Don't Look Up and Licorice Pizza, so that's five of the ten that I still have to see, but more on that in a few weeks. In today's episode, we're continuing to look back at Oscars of the past. We began a few episodes ago with 1976 as the launching point, 45 years ago, meaning the Oscars that aired that year in early 77. And with each episode in this limited Academy Award series, we've leaped ahead in five-year increments, 76, 81, 86, and so on. And we're now exploring the Oscar season of 2006, or early 2007 if you go by when they were shown on TV. And if you're saying to yourself, damn, old movies, bring it on! Then, all the power to you. But if you're saying to yourself, damn, old movies? Then I send you all the respect in the world, but could I offer, for your consideration, the words of actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. Last time I had the pleasure of having Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho join me for a look at The Departed, which got Best Picture of 2006. If you're listening, Chris, come back on anytime. And this time around, we're diving into two of the other nominated Best Picture candidates, and they are The Queen, starring Helen Mirren, and Little Miss Sunshine, with a great ensemble cast that includes Tony Collette, Greg Kinnear, Steve Carell, Abigail Breslin, Paul Dano, and Alan Arkin. Just one more thing before we get going. For these Oscar-themed episodes of this show, you all have a hand in deciding which films get featured. I post a poll on my socials at the beginning of each week, with the names of the nominated films to find out which one you go for. This time around, when I looked at the results to see where you threw your love, it all went to these two films. But, as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of this year's nominated pictures. So thank you to those of you who voted, and if you didn't vote, then, hey, vote on the next one. Why not? And that said, as always, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Queen and Little Miss Sunshine, Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both, as well as those bonus ones I just mentioned for the other nominees, which were Babel and Letters from Iwo Jima. Then the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous, one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. Then comes the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, the big finish, with a preview of the next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from for the year 2011. So rewind 30 years back to early 2007 as the 06 Oscar winners were announced throughout the evening. Bulgaria and Romania had just joined the European Union, or EU, that January. The Indianapolis Colts had just beaten the Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl at Dolphin Stadium in Miami, Florida in February, with Peyton Manning getting named MVP. And the blogging website Tumblr was created by David Karp in New York. In other words, it's time now for the spoiler-free plot setups. Let's begin with The Queen, starring Helen Mirren in her Best Leading Actress Oscar-winning role as Queen Elizabeth II. 
as well as Michael Sheen as former Prime Minister Tony Blair, Sylvia Sims as the Queen Mother, and James Cromwell as Prince Philip. The Oscar-nominated directing of the Queen was done by Stephen Frears, who would go on to helm Philomena in 2013 with Judi Dench. In addition to Best Picture, Leading Actress, and Director, the Queen was also nominated for Peter Morgan's original screenplay, Consolata Boyle's costume design, and Alexander de Platt's musical score. Of the six nominations for this film, though, only Helen Mirren would make a trip to the podium, as Best Picture and Director went to Martin Scorsese for The Departed. Now, I know this is probably a pretty facile comparison to make. Maybe it's even too easy. But it warrants mentioning that the first thing I thought of is that this year, 2022, Kristen Stewart is up for leading actress for playing Diana Spencer in the film Spencer. So you might say that makes looking at the Queen all the more relevant to the current Academy Awards season. But unlike the surreal film that Spencer is, which calls itself in the opening title card a fable from a true tragedy, the Queen is much more grounded in its depiction of the royal family. I'm not saying it's historically accurate, necessarily. What I mean is that Spencer is dreamlike and fantastical. The Queen is much more straight-up dramatic reenactment. Or as Helen Mirren told Entertainment Weekly magazine this month, quote, I knew I was stepping into the hornet's nest. The British have a very conflicted relationship with the monarchy. On the one hand, they love to mock them and criticize them and give them a hard time in every possible way. And on the other hand, they have a profound love for the institution, the history, and in particular, for the Queen. End quote. The opening title card in the Queen is a quote from Shakespeare, from Henry IV, Part II, to be specific, which is, Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. The film opens with Queen Elizabeth watching on the television the Election Day morning coverage on the news. Tony Blair, he's with his wife and kids on the TV, feeling victorious and optimistic that he's about to be elected England's youngest Prime Minister ever. She briefly turns from the TV to ask Mr. Crawford if he voted yet. Turns out he's a painter, and she's watching the TV while sitting and posing. He proudly tells her that he did not vote for Blair, and she expresses her envy that he is able to vote, or as she puts it, the sheer joy of being partial. He tells her, you may not be allowed to vote, but it is your government. And she says, yes, I suppose that is some consolation. We're then brought to the 2nd of May, 1997, as she wakes up to the sound of a bagpiper outside the palace. She's told that Tony Blair won in a landslide, and that, at his insistence, everyone will be on a first-name basis, as in, call me Tony. She replies, has he been sent a protocol sheet? Tony Blair and his wife Cherie arrive for his meeting with the Queen. She congratulates him while Cherie waits outside of the room. They have a formal conversation through forced smiles and clenched teeth. She tells him that he's her 10th Prime Minister, that her first was Winston Churchill, and says in so many words that she'll be giving him plenty of guidance and advice. And he politely replies, I look forward to receiving it. He gets on his knee, says his party won the election, asks permission to form a government. And she's there like, nuh-uh, that's my line. It's my duty as your sovereign to invite you to become Prime Minister and to form a government in my name. And if you agree, the custom is to say yes. And he does. Cherie is summoned in. She says they're spending the summer in France. The Queen says, oh, I'll be in Balmoral, which is the holiday home of the royal family. It's a castle in Scotland. She quotes Queen Victoria, extolling the virtues of Balmoral, which causes more than a few awkward eye blinks from the Blairs. The Blairs make their exit, they walk down the stairs, and the missus lets loose on Tony about the vibes she got from Liz, angrily imitating her. Thank you very much for coming. Now fuck off. Tony goes, I know, what was that all about? And she says, God knows. Diana. Whatever it is, it'll be something to do with Diana. Mic drop, and boom.
With that line, the film then catapults us right into a montage of real news footage of Diana walking through a terminal, covering her face from the paparazzi. Little snippets of news coverage says, Princess Diana, embroiled in more controversy as she pulls out of a meeting with MPs, and Princess Diana moved today to patch up her relations with her former royal nanny. Princess Diana flew to Milan today for the memorial service for the murdered Italian fashion designer Versace, and how she sailed out into the Mediterranean on a yacht with Mohammed al-Fayed and his son and was captured by photographers embracing him. The news says emphatically, once again, her judgment under scrutiny. This pretty much is the film's way of carrying us through the summer of 1997 in about 46 seconds, because suddenly a title card tells us that it's August 30th in Paris. There's a hybrid of real footage and reenactments set to tense music leading up to a point-of-view shot of the entrance to that traffic tunnel where the collision occurred. Cut to a shot of the Queen and her husband being woken up to the arrival of Robin Janvrin, member of the House of Lords of the UK, who would go on to be her private secretary from 1999 to 2007. This is actually a historical inaccuracy in the film, since it's obviously 97. He really did break the news to her, but he wasn't her secretary yet. Anywho, she says what's going on, and he tells her it's the Princess of Wales. Prince Philip is the one to respond, saying in exasperation, what's she done now? Philip and the Queen then are watching the news footage, with Philip saying she was supposed to be in London. What was she doing in Paris? Prince Charles comes in, and they agree to let the boys sleep until they know more. The boys, of course, meaning William and Harry. Charles wants to fly to Paris using one of the royal planes, but Elizabeth nixes this idea, saying it's a private matter. Diana is no longer a member of the royal family. Using that plane would be the kind of extravagance that the royal family is criticized for. Then Diana's death is confirmed, and Tony Blair knows that he should make a statement in the morning. The Queen walks past the open bedroom of William and Harry as Charles is breaking the news to them. He comes out into the hallway, tells his mother that through a travel agency in New York, he can get a flight to Paris with an hour stopover in Manchester. He then hits her below that royal belt when he says, Perhaps now you'd like to consider whether it's an extravagance to bring back the mother of the future King of England in one of our planes. She agrees, but states her intent to have her two grandsons banned from access to the radio and TV so that they won't get upset. But she does speak up for the two of them when Philip tells her that her sister commented that Diana is more annoying dead than alive. She looks at Philip and says, make sure you never let the boys hear you talk like that. Then there's footage of mourners in tears leaving flowers at the gates with reporters saying that there has been no word from the palace while Tony Blair rehearses his statement over the phone. And then comes the holy shit moment. Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, from Cape Town in South Africa, making that famous statement to the cameras that he always knew the press would kill her in the end and that every photographer and tabloid that ever took and published exploitative photos of her has blood in their hands today. And the Queen asserts over the phone to Tony Blair that there will be no formal statement from the royal family, that no member of the royal family will speak publicly about this. It's a private matter, treated as such. The funeral will be private and not public, per Diana's family's wishes. Blair tries to tell her that the British people need to be able to share in the grief, but she repeats that it's the Spencer family's wishes. This is a family affair, not a fairground attraction. And she abruptly ends the call, hanging up on him, leaving Blair to vent to his wife Cherie his disbelief but Cherie shows not one iota of shock. He gives his official statement to the press, calling Diana the people's princess, and that's how she'll remain. And there's mixed reactions from the officials watching him on the TV, combination of tears and some snide comments. And with this being the 25-minute mark of the film, maybe we should stop there and give you the chance to experience the story yourself. How Diana's death was handled, the clashes between her and the royal family, the different ideologies, the old god versus the new.
But as for my take on the Queen, see it. Now, granted, I'm American, so my reactions are coming from the perspective of an outsider looking in. So I'm in no position to claim any expertise or fully informed political viewpoints, but from the perspective of a film buff, as a film, it is worth seeing. If anything, for Helen Mirren's portrayal alone. I mean, this is... this woman can act. So her best leading actress, Oscar, double thumbs up to the Academy for those voting results. But let's pivot now from the royal family and their crowns to a whole different kind of family with its own crown-wearing hopeful, Little Olive Hoover, who hopes to become Little Miss Sunshine. Starring the ensemble cast that I already mentioned, this cult indie hit was nominated for four Academy Awards. Best Picture, Original Screenplay, Supporting Actress for Abigail Breslin, and Supporting Actor for Alan Akin, and it won two, Screenplay and Supporting Actor. Little Miss Sunshine debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 06, before opening nationwide in the U.S. that August, and a lot of Europe in September. It played at a pretty impressive number of film festivals, actually. Los Angeles, France, Switzerland, Finland, the Netherlands, Spain, Poland, Mexico, Japan, Taiwan, Indonesia, Serbia. I mean, this is a crazy long roster. There was a bidding war that, I would imagine, turned pretty competitive. I may as well be honest and say that as much as I love this film, there are certain elements of it that, if it were made today, would probably generate a hell of a lot of shall we say, discourse on social media and things like that. The whole idea is that there's this family by the name of Hoover. And if you're a member of this family, then you could justifiably feel that you drew the short straw in life. They live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The husband and father, Richard, played by Greg Kinnear, is a motivational speaker who is vehemently against the idea of losing at anything in life. He's driven. He's determined. He does not suffer the notion of losing at anything gladly. He has no tolerance for weakness. And ironically, he is a failure at motivational speaking. And there's a pretty good chuckle at the beginning of the film, him standing in front of a room with a screen behind him, and he's presenting these slides about winning and goal-setting and going for what you want and grabbing the world. And when he finishes up and thanks the audience and the lights come up, probably about four or five people in the audience and one's on their phone. An interesting piece of trivia from the director commentary on the DVD, Greg Kinney's parents were two of the people in the audience. But Richard's wife, Cheryl, played by Toni Collette, she has more of a dramatic entrance. She's talking on the phone while she's driving, and she's using a handheld device, which dates the movie. <laughs> and she's smoking a cigarette, even though she's denying it. She's going to the hospital to pick up her brother, Frank, played by Steve Carell, to bring him to her home. Frank is introduced in a close-up, just staring forlornly out of the window, looking completely emotionally shattered and bruised. He had recently made an attempt on his own life for reasons that come out in the next few scenes. So he'll be staying with the Hoovers for a while, sharing a bedroom with his teenage nephew Dwayne, played by Paul Dano, who, by the way, is currently on screen in the new Robert Pattinson Batman movie. Dwayne, by choice, does not speak. He communicates by writing his thoughts down on paper, says that he hates everybody, including his family, and wants to become a jet pilot. He's all emo and sullen moods. There's Grandpa, Richard's father, played by Alan Akin in his Oscar-winning role, who lives with his son, Richard, daughter-in-law, and grandkids because he's been kicked out of a nursing home for bad behavior. He snorts cocaine in the house, goes through F-bombs like a dealer at Vegas, and makes known his dislike of takeout fried chicken in one of the film's best lines of dialogue. You might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a comedy? Say what? I say, stay with me. <laughs> Finally, there's Olive, played by a nine-year-old Abigail Breslin in her Oscar-nominated performance. 
The opening shot of the film is a close-up of the top half of Olive's face. She's got a pair of eyeglasses on, and the reflection of the lenses, what she's watching on TV, is visible. She's got playing a recording of a Miss America pageant just at the moment when the winner is announced and bursts into happy tears, looks of delight, hugs, kisses. This is what Olive is yearning for. She was in a regional competition and placed runner-up, but a message on the answering machine informs them that the winner was disqualified. Something about diet pills, the message says. So Olive was moved up and won, which means that she can go on to California to compete for the title of Little Miss Sunshine. She adorably squeals with delight, happily bounces around her room. She's gathering up her music, her clothes, throwing everything into a duffel bag. She's completely and totally over the moon. Breslin's performance throughout the entire film is 1,000% charisma, cuteness, and empathy. She's got moments where she shows innocent excitement over the prospect of having some ice cream and waffles. Then at one point, she's tearing up from her insecurity about her chances of winning. Scenes where she bonds with her grandfather, who's got a tender soft spot for his little granddaughter. Oscar nod for Breslin, well-deserved. She's in her 20s now, and I've seen her in other things. She was the teenage daughter of Julia Roberts and Ewan McGregor in August Osage County. She was one of the Chanel's in the horror comedy series Scream Queens. And, unfortunately, she also played Baby in the ill-advised and best-forgotten made-for-TV remake of Dirty Dancing a few years ago. But you can't help but root for this little kid in this film. I mean, I have a daughter myself, so that probably has something to do with it, especially in the scenes she shares with her grandfather and with her father. My daughter doesn't do beauty pageants or anything like that, but Olive just exudes this sweetness and this vulnerability that just pulls you in. The bulk of the film is the road trip that the whole family takes from Albuquerque to California, and everything that could possibly go wrong does. The running gag, literally the running gag, is that the Volkswagen is a piece of shit, so to get the engine going, Richard has to sit at the driver's wheel while everyone else gets behind it to push. Once it gets going, one at a time, they all have to run alongside it to keep up and leap into the moving vehicle. Little Miss Sunshine is not National Lampoon's vacation, even though I'm hopefully not making it sound like it. <laughs> I guess there's some overlap to an extent, but Little Miss Sunshine ultimately is about how a family that may be dysfunctional, according to the standards of other people, still comes together and pulls for each other in their own way, no matter how eccentric, raunchy, or not plugged all the way into the wall their dynamics with each other may be. The first example that comes to mind <laughs> is when Grandpa turns to Frank. Now, this is an old man turning to his daughter-in-law's brother, mind you, gives him money to go get him some porn magazines, tells him to pick himself up a gay magazine as well. But to be fair, you might say that this is small stuff in an era when Borat sequels score Oscar nominations and critical praise. So yeah, there's some humor that can get a bit cringe. Unkind comments that Richard makes about suicide attempts that might be a trigger for some viewers. A homophobic slur. The objectification of little girls that's depicted in a satirical way. The filmmakers make no bones about their obvious feelings about beauty pageants. Especially when it's little kids. But you can't help but get invested in this family. You may despise some of what they say or do, but by the final reel, you're finding yourself on Team Hoover. Let's forge ahead to the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So, proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including potential plot spoilers and the endings, are going to come fast and furious. So, spoiler alert, now. Let's take care of the Queen first. Number five. As she did her research to prepare for the role of Queen Elizabeth, Helen Mirren learned that Elizabeth can suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder. She incorporated this into her performance as the cameras were rolling. There's a scene when she's on the phone with Tony Blair, and she's rearranging pens on top of her desk just perfectly. The director, Stephen Frears, wasn't sold on the idea at first, but once he saw it, in it stayed. 
Number four. The real-life Tony Blair wrote his autobiography, published in the UK in 2010, and it's called A Journey. I haven't read it, but according to a 2015 article in the British publication The Mirror, Blair hasn't seen the film. But he apparently was suspected of lifting some of the film's dialogue and including it in his own writing. In the plot setup, I mentioned how early in the film she tells him that he's her 10th Prime Minister, the first being Winston Churchill. The screenwriter Peter Morgan said that dialogue was conjured up in his imagination and, quote, can't fathom the idea of having guessed it exactly right, end quote. Number three. Helen Mirren played Queen Elizabeth II a second time on the Broadway stage in 2015 in the play called The Audience. She won a Tony, which made her, at the time, the 10th performer to win both an Oscar and a Tony for playing the same character. Number two. The film is actually accurate in having Philip refer to his wife as Cabbage. That's apparently a term of endearment that he uses. <laughs> I'm an American, so I can't claim too much knowledge of British slang or colloquialisms, but given the aroma of Cabbage as it ages, I can't imagine that calling my wife by that moniker would get me any winning lottery ticket. So any British listeners who can enlighten me, I'm counting on you. Educate this yank. And number one. Reportedly... Queen Elizabeth II invited Helen Mirren to dinner after the release of the film, but Mirren couldn't make it because of her filming schedule. In an interview published in The Hollywood Reporter just about two weeks ago, February 25th of this year, Mirren said that she thinks that the Queen has seen this film. She offers this up, quote, I got the sense that it had been seen and that it had been appreciated. I've never heard directly, and I never will, end quote. And she also said, quote, my parents were Republicans. They didn't believe in monarchy. I found myself, when I started researching the role, very admiring of the Queen. I honestly never really thought about her before. To me, she was like Big Ben. She'd just always been there. End quote. And now, it's Little Miss Sunshine's turn to jump back into the spotlight. Number five. Casting could have been. The role of Frank, played by Steve Carell, was written expressly for Bill Murray by the screenwriter, Michael Arndt. Murray was not available. So that's when the studio stepped in to say that it wanted Robin Williams. That didn't pan out either. And an unknown named Steve Carell, who was just getting going with the American adaptation of the British comedy series The Office, nabbed the role in the end. Number four. Speaking of screenwriter Michael Arndt, he was the personal assistant to actor Matthew Broderick. So he was privy to different scripts that were sent Broderick's way. That got him wanting to take a stab at writing one of his own. He resigned, devoted himself to writing his own screenplay. Undoubtedly glad that he did, because it got him the Academy Award. Number three. How did Michael Arndt end up with such a weird premise for a film? I'll tell you. No, no, put down the Q-tips, you heard that right. Good old Annie spoke to a group of high school students and gave them these galvanizing words of inspiration. Quote, If there's one thing in this world I hate, it's losers. I despise them. End quote. And when Arndt heard about this, he was astonished and horrified, and the philosophy of the character of Richard Hoover was born. Number two. Because Abigail Breslin was just nine years old at the time of filming, Alan Arkin was concerned about the profanity-laced tirades that the script called for him to go off on with her right there. In the scene where the family is riding in the Volkswagen van and she's got headphones on, listening to music, while he's using language that would make a sailor blush, she wasn't acting. They really did have her listening to music during the filming of the scene. She didn't hear anything that he was saying until she saw the finished film. And number one. 
The scene in the diner where Olive is adorably hesitating when it's her turn to order and she's apologizing to the waitress when her father turns to her and whispers, don't apologize, it's a sign of weakness. She ends up ordering waffles a la mode with chocolate ice cream only to have her father talk to her about the dangers of putting on weight, reminding her of how beauty pageant winners are all thin and probably don't eat such things. According to the DVD commentary, the co-directors, the husband and wife team of Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, they had their parents as extras at the next table. Dayton even commented, quote, Those are our parents in the background there. I couldn't believe how much my mother was kind of hamming it up. She was really getting into our silent dialogue technique, end quote. I looked, and I didn't see much at first, but then by the third or fourth time, you do see the group of four in the background, and yeah, huh? She's pretty animated for someone who's supposed to be just having a cup of joe. And as promised, I have a fun fact as well for the two other Best Picture nominees of 2006, for Babel. In this film, Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt play a married couple with two kids. The two of them are traveling in Morocco. Blanchett and Pitt would reunite on screen two years later for the film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Adapted from the F. Scott Fitzgerald short story, they play love interests who do their best to make the most of their limited time together. And for Letters from Iwo Jima, the actual filming location was nowhere near Japan. It was actually filmed on the same beach in Malibu, California, where they shot the opening scenes of the film version of Grease. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous, all according to Oscars.org, the official site, so you know this information is credible. Ellen DeGeneres was the host of the Oscars this year. In her opening monologue, she said that she always wanted to host the Academy Awards ever since she was a little girl. She said, quote, I think most people dream of winning an Academy Award. I had a dream of actually hosting. Let that be a lesson to you kids out there. Aim lower. She also said, quote, There's the pressure to keep your speeches short. And then, you know, let's be honest, it's not that we don't have time for long speeches, it's that we don't have time for boring speeches. So if you don't have anything interesting to say, I suggest that you make something up, like, I remember when I was a kid, growing up in the Bronx. Even if you weren't from there, people love it when you grew up in the Bronx. But listen, don't even stress about that, because maybe you won't win. She then went on to praise Abigail Breslin, saying, quote, She's just filled with joy and hope and not worried about competition. She's just happy to be here, and that's how it is, really, for your first nomination. But after you've been nominated a few times, you just want to win, really. Am I right, Peter O'Toole? There he was in the audience, Peter O'Toole, celebrating his eighth career nomination, nary a single win. And she gets in one last dig by saying, you know what they say, third time's the charm. And when Alan Akin received his Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, the voiceover announcer said that, at first, he was considered not right for the role of Grandpa, because he was too virile. And the directors both confirmed this on the DVD commentary track. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that's directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them, and each and every listener is always invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names if it makes anybody feel uncomfortable. That's why I always do first name and last initial only. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized message. So, two episodes back, the subject was the 2001 Academy Awards and the films A Beautiful Mind and Moulin Rouge. And the question asked, which 2006 film 
based on a Dan Brown novel by the same name, stars Tom Hanks as Robert Langdon, and reunites the actor-director collaboration of Paul Bettany and Ron Howard from A Beautiful Mind. And the answer is... The Da Vinci Code. And a big huzzah to the following people who sent in their answers. First, we got my two fellow outlaws, Liz and Greg. The three of us married into the same family. Liz married my wife's brother, Greg married my wife's sister. So the three of us have our own text and Instagram thread going. We call ourselves the outlaws instead of the in-laws, because we're punk like that. Or as punk as three people in their 40s can be. Liz says, Da Vinci Code into house. Good shout out there, Liz. Greg offers this thought. Angels and Demons was better. And you know, Greg, you ain't wrong. Regular listener Mary C. Always glad to hear from you, Mary. I think that Mary's streak here rivals Meryl Streep's in Oscar nominations. So you go. There's also my buddy and fellow podcaster Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho. You know him. He was on last time to talk with me about The Departed. We'll collaborate again for sure. And hey, check out his show, The Movie Psycho. He recently did a few episodes on the Dark Knight trilogy to build up to the release of the new Batman movie that just came out. And we got from across the pond in Liverpool, England, Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes. Give his show a listen as well. Dave's got a real knack for just making you want to engage in whatever conversation topic he puts out there. He's been on this show twice, once for the Michael Keaton Batman movie, and once for Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. And we're not through collaborating either. There is also Stu and Al from the Stu and Al pod, also from England. As always, big shout out to you guys. You're both great. It's been about a year and a half now that I've been listening to their show, The Stu and Al Pod, and it is fantastic. Give that one a go. These guys are hysterical. Thanks, everyone, for contributing. Thank you for indulging me like this. I've said it before, and I will say it again. My favorite thing about podcasting is the people. So if you're a first-time listener, or if you've listened before but never submitted a response, I say every time, what's stopping you? It's fun, and I'm always happy to plug anything that other people create, whether that's a podcast, a book, music, anything at all. That's what it's all about, people connecting with people. And with everything going on in the world today, there is nothing to lose and everything to gain from just positive interaction. And it doesn't matter when you answer any trivia from any episode, retroactive shoutouts and memes all around. And here is this week's trivia question. After winning Best Supporting Actor for Little Miss Sunshine in early 2007, Alan Akin would be nominated in the same category again six years later for his portrayal of film producer Lester Siegel in what 2012 film that was directed by Ben Affleck and starring Affleck and John Goodman? Name this film that won Best Picture of 2012. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on The Queen, Little Miss Sunshine, Ellen DeGeneres as Oscar host, Peter O'Toole's eight Oscar nominations, anything about the 2006 Oscars, submitting a response to the trivia question, hit me up on my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. That's pod, P-O-D. As for what's coming up next time with the five-year increments, we're hitting the year 2011. Academy Awards history came full circle that year, with Best Picture Honors going to The Artist, the first silent movie to get top prize since the Academy's first year when only silent movies were eligible, and the World War I drama Wings was the inaugural winner. In addition to The Artist, you have a longer list of nominated films to choose from. We're now in the era of a revised voting system that allowed for anywhere between 5 and 10 Best Picture nominees. So for the next episode, you vote for which one you want to hear about. And the one that gets the most votes, it is. And they were, in no particular order, 
extremely loud and incredibly close, The Help, The Tree of Life, Hugo, Warhorse, The Descendants, Moneyball, and Midnight in Paris. Keep your eyes open to my socials for the poll, and from there, it is in your hands. And that wraps up episode 43. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I always say I would be very grateful if you could rate or review this podcast on whatever platform you're using. Apple, Good Pods, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is. It's always a great help, not only in terms of boosting the show's visibility, but giving me honest feedback, suggestions for future episodes. I'm open to all of it. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies, and until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the nerve-shattering thought of pushing the family Volkswagen van to get the engine going before running alongside it and leaping in to avoid the rest of your family leaving you behind in Albuquerque.